are talking about families. We are talking about children, and we are talking about parents. And so we are talking about families. Growing up, I grew up in a dysfunctional family. My dad's here today. He can attest to it. We were a dysfunctional family. Uh, you know, we had six, or sorry, five kids. And uh, so there were seven sinners living in the house together, which creates dysfunction. Uh, I remember, you know, we would fight over uh, who used to drink the pickle juice when the jar was empty. I mean, we used to fight over who got to lick the ice cream box. That's what happens when you have five kids, okay? Uh, we, we used to have this, this rule before we ate that my mom and dad would bring out all the food, put it in the middle of the table, but we couldn't take any until we prayed. So my, my brother Scott would take like the best steak and he would lick it and put it back down so that none of the rest of us would take it. But that was who my family was. And it was fun for sure, but it was also dysfunctional. You know, there was uh, selfishness, there was fighting, there was anger in the house. And for many years, I thought, you know what, we are the only dysfunctional family on the block. But as I started to get to know people and families better, what I discovered is that every family is dysfunctional to one degree or another. Uh, It comes without exception. All families have some dysfunction in them. The statistics are startling as far as how the defunction, this dysfunction affects the family. Uh, just looking at the divorce rates, and this may be you here today, and I'm not trying to, uh, to, to hurt you, but uh, this is to, to just show kind of the brokenness of society and the hurt that you have been through, uh, if this is your situation. But it says that the divorce rate from 1970 to 1992 increased 279%. That in today's, uh, in today's economy, uh, 50% of all marriages end in divorce. It goes on to talk about uh, the, the ramifications of this. Uh, 75% of adolescent patients in chemical abuse centers, as well as in juvenile correctional facilities, come from single-family homes, homes where both parents are not present. And so we see that the dysfunction spreads and that the dysfunction is devastating and that's even within normal typical mother and father homes they are extremely dysfunctional in today's passage we are going to look and see what paul says a functional family looks like what a redeemed and redeeming family looks like according to god's word because the most difficult place In the whole wide world, to live out your faith is in your home. And it's actually also the most important place to live out your faith, to live out the gospel. And so that's what we're going to look at today from Paul. If you would open up to Ephesians chapter 6, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 4. The first part, we will be looking at children and their role in a gospel-centered family. And then the second half is the parents' role. Role the gospel-centered family. So read along with me, if you would. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. It's page 979 in the Red Bible. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, 
but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Let's pray. God, as we continue to discuss the gospel's impact on our families, first through marriages with husbands and wife, and now through children and parents, God, pray that you constantly be conforming our heart, that you would be transforming our heart to live as a redeemed family, a family that is growing towards the functionality that you call us to, Lord God. Lord, we are weak, we are selfish, we are tempted always. And so we pray that by the grace of your Holy Spirit, you would constantly change us and transform us and give us freedom to live as you have intended. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So what is God's desire for children? Let's start there first. Verse 1, again, it just says children, meaning young children, children that are under the authority of their parents, children that are still financially connected to their parents. It says children should obey their parents. Children should obey your parents, meaning that they should listen to and submit to their parents and all that they have to teach them and tell them. And this is one of the processes of the spirit-filled Christian. I don't know if you remember what we talked about, how Paul listed out in Ephesians chapter 5 what a spirit-filled Christian looks like. And he said a spirit-filled Christian is one who sings to God, who delights in God. A spirit-filled Christian is one who gives thanks. And then he spends 20 or so verses talking about how a spirit-filled Christian is a Christian who submits A submitting Christian. Verse 21 in Ephesians 5, he says, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so all of us in Christ are called to submit to the authorities that God has put over us. And for children, it is their parents. And so he calls them again to submit, to obey, to honor their parents. And he says to do this in the Lord, meaning that when it is in accordance with the commands of Christ, your ultimate authority, you are to obey. And so... Uh, if your parents ask you to do something that God, dis, that God uh, says not to do, you, you don't have to do it. You have the obligation to disobey. And so if your parents say, hey, I want you to come and I want you to you know, lie about your age so we can get the kids discount on the buffet. Or, like, it's okay to say, mom and dad, I can't do that. I'm a Christian. God calls me to do something differently. Or, or if you have become a Christian, your parents say, listen, you cannot go to church. You cannot pray. You cannot worship God. God calls us to disobey because He is our ultimate authority. He is our heavenly Father. Now, those are the extreme exceptions. The majority of the time, we are called to obey our parents even when we disagree with them. In verse 6, 1, again, it says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. One of the reasons why we should obey our parents is simply because it is right. Every culture throughout society has agreed that parents should parent their kids and that kids should obey and honor their father and mother. In every culture, this has been the norm, except for maybe the teen culture, right? But in every culture, the children should obey and honor their parents. And when it doesn't happen, people are discouraged by it so it's right for children to obey their parents it's right for their safety 
It's right for their wisdom. It's right out of gratitude because of all the parents have done to care for and nourish and provide for their child. It is right because their father and their mother will have to give an account for how they have parented their kids. And so it is right for kids, for children to obey their parents. It is literally righteous is what he says. Like Jesus, it is righteous. And so if you are being conformed into the image of Christ, if you are being renewed by the Holy Spirit, if you are growing in your faith as a child, this means that you are growing in obedience and in honoring your parents. He says in verse 2, honor your father and mother, and he is looking at the fifth commandment. Many of you are very familiar with the Ten Commandments, and he is the interesting thing about the Ten Commandments is the first four deal with our relationship with God, right? Don't have any idols. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Have no other gods. Keep the Lord's day. But then the first commandment that deals with relationships deals with the relationship to, from children to their parents. The first command for interpersonal relationships between people is a command to children to honor their father and mother. Exodus twenty twelve. Uh, is the first time that God gives His law, gives the Ten Commandments, when He brings them up out of Egypt, when He has saved them and delivered them and called them to live as a people of God, as the redeemed people of God. And He says this in the Ten Commandments. He says, Honor your father and your mother, that that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The Israelites fail to take the land, if you remember the story. They go in. uh, Joshua and Caleb says... God is going to give us this land. The rest of the spies says, no, they're too big. And so God sends them out and they wander in the wilderness and the generation dies off and a new generation rises up. And then God repeats the Ten Commandments and he gives it again in Deuteronomy 5.16 with a little bit of a different emphasis. He says, honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving to you. And so Paul takes the two commands and he blends them together in Ephesians chapter 5. And he does it to show that obedience is right. That it is so important to God that he engraved it into stone. That it made his top ten list. Obedience to your parents is so important, so right, that even in the Old Testament there were times where disobedience was punishable by death. And so we are called to obey children are called to obey their parents because it is right but they're also called to obey because it is beneficial verse 2 says honor your father and mother this is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land and so there's this this kind of formula here right that if you obey your parents that it will go well with you and that you will live long in the land. For the Israelites that were first uh, accepting this command, it was a promise. For us, it is a uh, principle. But for the Israelites, it was a promise. And the promise was, if you obey your parents, if you follow the God that they follow, if you follow the Lord God, you will remain in the promised land. You will remain in the land that is filled with blessing with nurture, with the presence of God. But if you disobey them, if you run away from them, if you pursue other gods, then you will be taken out of this promised land. And that's exactly what happened. The Israelites started to intermarry different religions and they started following other gods. 
and the Assyrians and the Persians and the Babylonians carried out God's promise to take them out of the land for disobeying their parents and from running from God. And so for them, it was a very explicit promise. For us, it is a very important point. It's a very important principle for our life. In Ephesians 2, he says that it will go well with us. You know, your parents growing up as a teenager, you think, boy, they don't know anything, right? It's amazing how when you're a teenager, you know it all. And then you go to college and you're like, man, I don't know anything. How do I wash my clothes, right? How do I cook grilled cheese? All of those things. But it says it will go well with you because your parents have wisdom to pass on. It also says that you will live long, that you will have long life. Again, this is not an explicit promise of, hey, if you obey your parents, you will live longer. But generally, this happens, right? Because what do parents tell their kids? Don't run with scissors, right? The kids that don't run with scissors probably have a better chance of living than the kids that are running around, you know, with scissors poked up. And so there's a premise here, right? Parents say, don't smoke, right? Don't don't get drunk, don't do drugs, all of these things. And what, what Paul is emphasizing here is there is wisdom that, you have, that your parents have to pass on to you. And as you follow them, they are, they are uh, I keep losing the word, they are uh, principles for living a long life, for living a healthy and long life. And so they are principles for us. Trish shares the story of uh, when she was growing up, she grew up in this town called Fall Creek, Wisconsin, which is outside Eau Claire. And it's kind of like Mayberry. Uh, nobody had locks on their lockers. Everyone was kind of safe on the streets, more or less. There was virtually no crime. And so she grew up in a very safe environment. Uh, she, she, she left for college 10 miles away in Eau Claire and went to school there. And while she was there, uh, the opportunity came up for her to go on spring break with some friends. And they wanted to go to this party destination in Mexico. I don't know what it was. And Trish asked her parents if she could go. And the response was, no. No way. Are you kidding me? I'm not going to send my daughter to the party destination in Mexico because I can't imagine what might happen. Trish was so frustrated at the time. She was so angry at the time. But she obeyed her parents. She honored her parents. And she didn't go. If you would ask her today, she would tell you how thankful she is that her parents didn't let her go. She could not imagine what possibly could have happened to her and what possibly could have happened to her faith if she had gone to a place like that. And so what we see is that parents have wisdom that we don't see when we're teenagers and even when we're in college and when we're on our own. And so God calls us to obey and to honor our parents because there are promises of wisdom that come with our parents' instruction. So children, if your parents are not asking you to do something that is sinful, you are called to obey. It is very, very simple. And so, you know, an 8 p.m. curfew is not a sin. (laughs) Sorry. That means this is something that you are called to obey. Cleaning your room is not opposed to the teachings of Jesus. And so we are to obey. And what we learn is that obeying your parents for children is an act of worship, that it actually pleases God. Colossians 3.20 puts it this way. It says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases 
the Lord. And so when your parents ask you to do something that is very, very difficult, that you disagree with, your obedience to them gives God pleasure. Isn't that amazing? You just think you're, you're, you're you know, a begrudging submission, but it gives God pleasure. He delights in that. Because your ultimate authority, your ultimate father is God. And so as you submit to your earthly parents, you are worshiping the God of the universe. Now, we've been kind of hard on the kids. And uh, even if you're here as an adult, you might be thinking, you know what, I have royally messed this up as a kid. Uh, I have... I have run away from my parents so many times. I've been disobedient to them. There are lies, there are things in my life that I still haven't told them that is just weighing on my conscience. And the scripture calls us to do two things with that. The first is to repent to, your, to, repent to God. To go to Him and ask Him for forgiveness for what you have done. And then to go and repent to your parents. And to ask their forgiveness for how you have disobeyed them. But the beauty of it is it pushes us towards the cross. You see, there is another one who was not disobedient, another son who was completely obedient. Romans 5.19 tells us about that one, about that son. It says, for as the one man's disobedience, talking about Adam's, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, which is Christ, the second Adam, the many will be made righteous. And so the righteousness of Christ is applied to disobedient children who come and repent and trust in Christ and cling to the cross. It goes on to list out how Christ was obedient in Philippians 2.8. When it says, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so Christ was obedient on our behalf. He was obedient to die for our disobedience. That we could live in a renewed relationship with our Heavenly Father but also with our earthly parents. And so we are called to repent, to follow them with obedience because it is right and because it is beneficial. He turns and he starts taking a look at fathers, at parents, in Ephesians chapter 6. Verse 4, his command starts with fathers. Now, you may wonder, why would he start with fathers? You know, he says, children obey your parents, plural. But now he targets the fathers. And the reason he does this is because, again, he is promoting the headship of the father in the home, of the husband. He is saying, you are going to be held account for how you raise your children. And so he looks at the fathers, but certainly the premises that we're about to read apply to both parents. He says, first off, that we should not provoke our children. Verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. What does it mean to provoke? What is, what is Paul talking about here? Well, provoking is to cause someone or to stir someone to anger. And what he's talking about here is righteous anger. And so when a father does something sinful towards their kids, does something wrong, it should provoke them to anger. They don't have to sin in their anger. They can still honor their father and mother, but they are stirred to anger. And saying, fathers, do not stir your kids to righteous anger. We see throughout the Old Testament the children of God stirring him to righteous anger. Deuteronomy 4.25 says, By doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord, your God, so as to provoke him to anger. 2 Kings 22.17, the Lord says, Because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, 
that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. And so looking back at Ephesians chapter 6, God is calling children to obey and to honor their parents and is calling the parents not to provoke their children to righteous anger. Uh, This past week, I was going through my house and Caleb, our, our second son, he was carrying some newspapers around and he was, I don't know if he was cutting them or coloring them or something, but he was playing with newspaper. We give our kids expensive toys, okay? Newspaper, here you go, have fun. So Caleb is carrying around this newspaper and uh, I go into the other room to sit down and watch TV and all of, my, all of a sudden I hear this screaming and, and you probably heard it, mine, give it back, mine, give it back. And so I get up and I'm frustrated and I'm angry because I'm in the middle of a TV show, which is extremely important. And uh, I run back into the dining room and I see Corbin holding on to newspaper and Caleb crying, give it back, it's mine, right? And so I just said, Corbin, go to timeout, go right now. And so Corbin goes to timeout and our tradition, our ritual is when they come out of timeout, we ask them what they did wrong. Uh, we, we have them go ask for forgiveness and then we tell them that we love them very much. And so I, I bring Corbin out of timeout. I say, Corbin, why did you go to timeout? And he goes, because I picked up some newspaper off the floor. And I'm, did Caleb drop it? No, no. Caleb, did he steal newspaper from you? No. And so there I am, and I was uh, provoking my kid to anger. Uh, unfortunately, I was provoking him to sadness which is always a cover-up for anger. But I was provoking him to anger. And so I had to go to him and I said, Corbin, please forgive me. I messed up. And then I sent Caleb to timeout. So. <laughs> but as parents, we are, we are tempted constantly to provoke our kids to anger. There are different ways that we do this, through like contradicting our own commands. Like I don't know if you've ever done this as a parent, in the minivan, when the kids are screaming in the back, you like look back and say, hey, quit yelling back there, right? We contradict what we tell our kids to do. Uh, we neglect our roles as fathers, as mothers, as headship. Uh, we work our life away, uh, thinking that that is what is important, and we neglect to be around our kids, to love them, to be a part of their life. We neglect Uh, nurturing them in the Lord and teaching them of what God has done. And so he calls us not to provoke our kids to righteous anger. It actually says in Colossians 3.21, it's a parallel command, and it says what happens when you provoke your kids to anger is you discourage them. You discourage them in their relationship with God. You discourage them in life. And so Paul calls fathers not to provoke their children to anger. He also calls us to nurture our children. Verse 4, he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up. This means to nurture them onto maturity. And so just as you would feed your own body food that you might grow into physical maturity, you are supposed to feed your children and nourish them in the Lord that they might grow into spiritual maturity. Going on, the NIV probably has a better translation of it. It says, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Training is a positive command. It is teach them about what the Lord is doing 
who the Lord is. And so we do this both through our words, right? We tell them, this is who God is. This is how God loves you. This is how you are to love God. But we also teach them by showing it to them. We teach them with our actions. The scary thing is that as we look at our children and we look at maybe some areas in their life where there is weakness, often we are looking in a mirror of ourselves. Because what is taught is usually caught more than spoken. And so we are to model a relationship with Christ by teaching our children with the word and by modeling it in our life. And so we are to be training them. We are also supposed to be instructing them. This is more of the negative command, the reproving them, the disciplining them, whatever that looks like for your child. To correct them when they veer off the ways that you and God have trained them to live and to worship Him. And it says to do it of the Lord, that we would do it uh, not according to uh, the, the culture that we live in, uh, that we wouldn't look at TV programs to figure out how to raise our kids, but we would do it of the Lord according to his word. Let me uh, conclude with kind of a, a brief story. Uh, my kids and I, we like to ride bikes a lot. And the bikes are old, and so they get broken a lot. And they don't function the way they're supposed to. And so they'll be riding out, and there will be a flat tire, or I won't put the training wheels on right, or the chain will fall off. And they'll bring it to me, and they'll say, Dad, can you fix it? And I I love to do that. And so I put the chain back on, pump up the tire, replace the tire, whatever it takes, right? And we get that bike properly functioning to go and ride. And it's wonderful, and it's joyous. As I had shared with you, I grew up in a dysfunctional family, just like all of you have. But the beautiful thing about the gospel, the beautiful thing about God is that he makes dysfunctional families move towards functionality, move towards what God has called us to. And it is not me who is the mechanic. It is God who is the mechanic on our families. Uh, This morning, my dad is here, which is wonderful, and it's a delight. But there were times in our own history where we weren't even talking to each other because you know what? I was not the perfect son and he was not the perfect father. But God, through his grace, redeems relationships. And he makes it a joy for me to be his son and hopefully a joy for him to be my dad. But you see that the gospel, that the Christ went to the cross, that he was the son that was obedient on our behalf. And the Father is pleased in us because of what Christ has done. Redeems our families. And it moves it from dysfunction to less dysfunction. (laughs) To less dysfunction. To less dysfunction. And then there will be a day when God makes all things new. And there will be no more crying. No more pain. No more suffering. And no more sin. And we will be in perfect relationship with our Heavenly Father and with each other. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are a redeeming God. We all confess that we all come from dysfunctional families from one degree to another, Lord. And it is difficult and it is painful and it is hard. Lord, as we have looked at your direction towards what a healthy, functional family looks like today, it is, it's vague. It doesn't answer all the details, God, but it is a pattern that we are to live out as children and as parents. We pray that by the grace of your Holy Spirit, you could help us do that this week for your glory and for our joy. In Christ's name, amen. We 